It's All Relative with Susan Bradley. A new original podcast series from News Talk. Welcome to It's All Relative. Today, my guest is a sibling of a very well-known campaigner, activist and journalist here in Ireland. This person at the age of 25 has achieved an incredible amount in her life to date, both as a contributor to a number of publications as well as her activism work. Today, I speak to Stephen O'Reardon, brother of Joanne. Joanne was born in County Cork, and is one of seven people in the world currently living with the condition Total Amelia. Joanne was born with no limbs and has worked tirelessly on behalf of folk with disabilities to ensure equality across the nation and way beyond. For Joanne, it began in 2011 publicly, when at the age of 15, she openly challenged the Irish government on a cut that they were going to make in their budget to disability payments. The intended cut was completely reversed and Joanne discovered her passion for activism. A prominent campaigner for disability rights was born. She went on to speak at the United Nations in New York just days after her 16th birthday. More about this later with Stephen. She was honoured with the Young Persons of the Year Award in 2012 and only over three years later, she was honoured with the JCI Top Outstanding Young Persons of the World Award. Her older brother Stephen, 13 years her senior, hope you don't mind me saying that, <laughs> is in studio with me here today. And he's made a documentary film of his sister called No Limbs, No Limits. Today, the story is about Stephen, about being Joanne's brother and growing up within the O'Reardon household in Cork. Welcome to It's All Relative, Stephen. Tell us a little bit about growing up in Mill Street in Cork. Were you from a big family and how was that for you? Yeah, I suppose before Joanne came along, there was obviously two older brothers, myself and then my younger sister, Gillian. Yeah. And my mom would have obviously fell pregnant with Joanne. Yeah. And I think the first time that we realised that she was pregnant or that something might have been wrong with Joanne was when we were sitting down at the table and we were playing cards. So as a family, we always loved to play cards Mm. and they felt that was the most, I suppose, opportune moment to tell us because maybe we would forget after they told us. So Joanne is the youngest in the family. So we have, so who have we got um, from from the top? We have Dennis, your older brother. Yeah. And then Danny. Yes. Yourself. Myself. Full of glamour. Gillian. (laughs) (laughs) And Joanne. So three boys... And then two girls. Yeah, so we had quick concessions with <laughs> Dennis, Danny and myself. Right. Then there was a long break, a famine. <laughs> then Gillian came along. Yeah. And then there was a longer famine. Yeah. And then Joanne came along. Okay, okay. So you, you were saying when your mum was expecting number five, Joanne, you, th- she sat you around the table with your dad, was it? And yeah, so we were playing cards and I suppose really my mother just said, look, we want to let you know that um, obviously... We're having another baby. There might be something wrong. There might be complications with the baby. How would you feel about that? And obviously we're like, what, 11 and 12, 13, 14, and Gillian would have been maybe six. 
and we had no idea what they were talking about. Yeah, of course. So we're like, whatever. And they're like, so what do you mean there'd be something wrong? And they're like, oh, well, there could be something wrong intellectually or physically. Like, how would you feel about that? Mm. So my oldest brother, Dennis, was like, well, Jesus Christ, <laughs> if someone says something about that baby, I'm going to box them. So I was like, mm, maybe not the reaction we're going for. We're just wondering how you would feel. So we're like, yeah, it'd be great. Sure, it'd be great cracks or whatever. We don't care. Exactly. And then we went back playing cards. Mm. So it didn't really matter. It never mattered to us what Joanne would look like, I suppose, be it intellectually or physically. Mm. And that's how we've continued, I suppose, with Joanne in terms of our personal relationships, family relationships, mm. or how we see society for Joanne. Mm. Um, mm. I think more often than not, people disable Joanne rather than Joanne is disabled. Yeah. And that's the problem. Uh, whereas we would never have looked at Joanne as having a disability. Obviously, I'm aware that she has no limbs. Mm. I'm aware that there is limitations for Joanne, but there's also limitations in my own life. Of course, for sure. And, and when, when Joanne was born, you know, growing up, I, I saw some, some excerpts from your amazing documentary, um, No Limbs, No Limits. Um, you know, you were 13 years old when Joanne was born. She very much was Joanne and is Joanne. So it was, was it a case of the family just adapting um, the house to meet her needs? Yeah, at the st- well, no, because we lived in a cottage, an old cottage, which was about 150 years old. Okay. So pretty much like redundant for somebody with a disability. <laughs> um, but to be fair, my dad works in the steel industry, so he yeah. would very much have created like ramps and stuff and things to get her in and out of the house and get her around the house. But the house would have been inadequate for Joanne's needs. And I think my parents being my parents, they always wanted to strive for Joanne to have the best possible life. And... We were very lucky, actually, really, because what happened was, if you all remember Echo Island, a very exciting RT programme. Very. And myself, my brothers, entered this competition, which was the fantasy football. And Daryl Breen yeah. uh, rang us and said, would you want to come on the show? And we were like, obviously mad for road. So myself, <laughs> my two older brothers and my dad shivied up to, obviously, RT. And we were fascinated by that. And we were in the canteen. And who sat beside us? Only Pat Kenny. No way. And we're looking at Pat Kenny and we're telling dad, this is your moment to shine. Go and tell him, obviously, Joanne's story. Get on, you know, the Pat Kenny show. Yeah. So dad's like, no, 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 I won't. No, no. I'm going to get over and say hello to him. <laughs> anyway, Pat Kenny left. Shoved him over. Oh, did yeah, he Pat, you know, he left. Yeah. So dad ran out the door like a superhero that he is and obviously cornered Pat Kenny and told him wow. the story of Joanne. And then that led to my parents walking on to the Pat Kenny show. And I suppose introducing Joanne to the world. And that was the first moment really in my life where I saw Joanne's story changing from a family story to really like a national story where people took her into their lives. How old was Joanne at this stage? Oh, she was only about eight months, I'd say. Really? Yeah. So if if anyone had ever seen it, they'll remember the fan on Joanne's face because Joanne gets very hot. Yeah. And there was a fan just cooling her down constantly and she was just splurting like... Yeah. into the fan which obviously was cute Joanne is still cute 25 years later <laughs> and so that's interesting that it was 8 months old so anybody in your in Mill Street in Cork would then recognise your mum and dad having been on the late late yeah so the whole the whole concept of it really was that they were trying to get Joanne's story out there and I suppose there would have been local campaigns maybe to raise funds for Joanne and it was an opportunity, really, from a community's perspective to try and get Joanne's story onto a national level. And to be fair, there was a number of people that would have been involved locally at the time um, that would have just really thought outside the box. So the idea was that they made posters 
and they delivered all the posters to all the businesses around the country. So the idea is that when they saw when you saw Joanne on the Pat Kenny show mm. on Saturday, you went to your mail on Monday, opened up the the letter or the envelope, and then inside that was the Joanne O'Riordan Fund. Wow. So it was all this kind of really clever thinking by local people that obviously worked with my parents to try and I suppose get Joanne to the point of kind of being seen. Yeah. Um, and that was phenomenal. I mean, my parents traveled all over the country, like with Joanne. Um, I think their best trip was probably to Spike Ireland, uh, the prison. <laughs> why where, why <laughs> did they go they there? Did, they did a fundraiser for her. <laughs> so we're like, oh, all these prisoners. Where's Spike Island? Like down in Cork. Like, Sorry, guys. It's Sorry. closed down now. Sorry. Sorry. Uh, the the Jackie's asking that. Sorry, I do appreciate my mom's from Cork. It's okay. So you, I spent all my childhood in Cork. I should. But know you have this. absolutely no fucking notion where what I'm talking about. <laughs> so, <laughs> hands up, Stephen. Hands up. Um, no, I suppose what I'm trying to get it's across there. Just my to guess at fundraising, like yeah. it, it, Okay. It was just that everybody got involved. Do you know? So a prisoner, a traveller, young people, older people, people working in the shops, obviously business people, different organisations. Everybody got involved. Everybody took Joanne's story into their lives. And were they looking for to create awareness and to generate funds to help with the is it literally the house? Is it to buy a wheelchair? Is it what what was the, yeah, the, it was, the main purpose? It was really to give Joanne all the tools possible to live the most independent life that she could. So that obviously involved the building of a new house. It involved obviously the purchasing of like wheelchairs, you know, technology, equipment to I suppose give Joanne the tools to I suppose embrace life in the best way that she could but at the same time there was limited expectation on what Joanne would do and yeah. what would be achieved with that and I think looking back on it while the community spirit was there and there was lots of funds raised I don't think anybody including my parents would have thought that Joanne would go on to address the United Nations Yeah which we'll talk about in a minute mm. for sure um, Growing up with you know the four other children the five of you growing up your mum mentions in the documentary when she was expecting she didn't know anybody who had ever, you know, was missing a limb, let alone the, the total Amelia syndrome. Um, and you, you, you show Joanne lying down, looking up. There was constantly, there was an immediate adjustment I saw from the excerpt I've seen where they decided, as you've just said, that, they're going to give Joanne the best possible chance to be stimulated in all shapes and forms from the get-go. Did you all embrace that as as kids? Or was it just very much part and parcel of your daily life? Well, I suppose looking back on it now, what we did to Joanne, we probably all would have ended up in the HSC and social welfare would have came out because we treated Joanne so much equally. Like we beat her up, you know, we as body siblings stamped her. Do. We played yeah. WWE with her. <laughs> We thought it was brilliant because Joanne had no limbs. She couldn't fight back. So you could body slam her into the couch. <laughs> that type of stuff. It's Joanne's. It's no, a true story. Like. It's true. <laughs> yeah. It's true. Uh, she loved it. Yeah. It... You know, she was up for it. Um, <laughs> I'm glad. I, I'm glad. I suppose, like you see, when you're so young, you're just, you're for, you're forgetful. Like there's no barrier there. So you, you don't see the obstacle like that's placed in front of Joanne because you're playing with her, you're engaging with her. You're, she's part of the family like and I think more often than not what happens when someone with a disability comes along is that sometimes they're forgotten and I think the whole idea was that she wasn't going to be forgotten she was going to be centre and you know seen in terms of family and one of the big things that I've always carried on in my own mind and I recently saw a picture of it actually at home when I was back in Mill Street was that 
because Joanne couldn't get up and because she couldn't walk around in the way that you or I could, my parents, well, my mom came up with the concept of putting like ABCs, one, two, trees, words. So big, massive posters on the walls, on the roof, on the tables, Amazing. on everywhere that she could see. So when Joanne was going around in the floor mm. and she was looking at the walls, she was actually looking at words. She was looking at sentences. She was learning how to speak. She was learning words. So there was always from a very young age like mm. this kind of concept of we will teach Joanne and help Joanne to be the best person that she can be. And that's what we've carried on through. Like when I'm talking about obviously you know, beating her up and playing <laughs> WWE and stuff. The idea of that is that that's what we did as kids. So Joanne was involved in of that. Of course. It's um, normal play with siblings. 100%. But how would you include her when she doesn't have limbs? Well, this is our way of including her. Of course. Of uh, course. This is our way of treating her as somebody that is part of the family. Um, now, there was moments where we didn't really want her to be part of the family because we'd be playing our Atari or PlayStation <laughs> and she wanted to play and we're like, go away, you've got no limbs, you're so embarrassing. But Aww. what we used to do is we put her on a bed uh, opposite us in, in the room that we are playing. And anyway, one day she fell off the bed and rolled underneath the bed and we'd forgotten that Joanne was there. <sighs> And my mom was looking for Joanne. She was like, where's Joanne? Oh, like, it was Joanne at the stage. Oh, I said she up only two. <laughs> but like, we didn't know where she'd gone. So we were like, where's Joanne gone? And we're like, but she's got no limbs. She can't like just walk away. So we were looking for her. And then we heard crying. And we're like, where is she? But anyway, she was underneath the bed. She rolled underneath the bed. And obviously we'd forgotten that she was there because we were playing the computer game. But it happened at Christmas as well. She rolled under the Christmas tree. And we couldn't find her in the Christmas tree. So there's a lot of moments where Joanne disappeared and we found her. But I am sensing, even though these stories are poignantly funny, like there's so They're much love Susan. that I'm seeing. Like I do need to kind of definitely, I, that's for, front and foremost for me, that it's just completely part of, of your crew. It's number it's number five, the baby. And I, you were saying earlier, your mum and dad are Joe and Dan. Throw it together and you get the name. Yeah. And I think because at the start, the, the idea was that Joanne wouldn't survive and my parents wanted to have some sort of a legacy for Joanne in oh, terms lovely. of recognition that she was part of the family regardless of what was going to happen. And of course, Joanne strived really because when my parents met a girl in the UK called Tina Stark, Stark who, yeah. who was born the exact same as Joanne, their family really and, jo and um, Tina's ability unleashed that concept of Joanne can do anything. And they came back with a VHS tape uh, to, to Cork and they produced that to the doctors and they said, you told us Joanne won't be able to do anything. And now we're showing you that Joanne can do stuff. Wow. And that was all from Tina and Tina's family. And it was the idea of almost having proof. You had to show them that there was capability in Joanne and that my parents hadn't lost the plot and that they believed in this person. Of course, yeah. Um, where did they, Joanne mentions Tina in her TED talk that I, I, I listened to, but where did your folks find the Stark family? I'm nearly sure that that was recommended by one of the local health nurses at okay. the time. She's in the UK, yeah. That Tina was in the UK, obviously the health nurse was in, in Ireland and she would have been with my mom. Um, I'm nearly sure that was it. It was definitely done through was a, a medical okay. kind of connection right. in, in that context. But I mean, like my parents had never left Dernagree. We'd never left Mill Street. Like the closest holiday we got was Ballybunion. Right, yeah. Do you know what I mean? So, so this to go was, to the UK was like this was an epic Australia. Trip. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we did what Queen Elizabeth didn't do for like way before her time. <laughs> <laughs> we crossed the border. <laughs> we stepped into the unknown. 
You should have your own podcast, uh, no. Stephen, seriously. Um, but <clears throat> no, I just think... That was a turning real point, was it? Yeah, I just think, you know, there comes a point, I think, in everyone's life that maybe my mom and my dad wanted to prove that there was worth in this child. And that just because you have a disability does not mean you should be on the side or in the shadows or forgotten about. And it was the concept that regardless of the barrier, my parents would tear down that barrier and open that door and allow Joanne the opportunity to see that she can do stuff if she wants to. And I think that carried on to us as advocates for Joanne in terms of being the brothers and the sisters and taking on that responsibility and seeing that role. And I think one of the big ones for me was when I was in university living my best life. Um, <laughs> my mom rang me and she was really upset because she wanted to get Joanne's school books onto CD because Joanne had developed a scoliosis, which is a curvature of the spine. Mm. And in school, because again, my parents always wanted Joanne to effectively be the same as every mm. other kid there doing their homework. Joanne used to write with the pen between her chin and her hand. And because of how she was positioned, it was obviously turning her spine That's and so obviously yeah. you know, progressing the scoliosis. So my mom was like, oh, we should just put our school books onto a CD. And of course, straight away was told, no, you can't do that. That's way too advanced. There's nothing like that out there. You couldn't, you couldn't possibly do that. And my mother was like, but she's going to miss out on her education mm -hmm. because we can't facilitate the opportunity, do you know what I mean, to allow her to excel in her education. So she rang me and she was very upset. And I said, ah, fuck that. I said, there's obviously CDs out there. Like, you have to be able to do this. Like, of course, you know, there is technology. So we, I came back to Ireland that summer and I said. Uh, Were you away in college, by the way? Sorry. Yeah, I was in, I was over in the UK living oh. my best life. Yeah. Where, uh, where in the UK? In Bath. Yeah. Lovely. Great rugby team. Just throw that out yeah, there. Yeah, I would agree. <laughs> they are. Beautiful buildings, but let's talk about the rugby players. Well, the yeah. historic reasons why I went, <laughs> yeah. But um, so I came back and my mother said, so what are you going to do? And I was like, yeah, I'm going to write to the minister. And she's like, right, well, go on. Off you go. And I was like, yeah, so I'm going to do it now. And I was like, listen, I've got better things to be doing with my time. I'm not writing to him. So then she came back again. She's like, are you going to write to the minister? So the long story short mm. of that is that I wrote a letter to the minister saying, why Joanne required these CDs or you know, the ad adaptation of her books onto CD. And then they came back and they said no. So then we decided to read up on all the legislation out there to do with education. The Minister of Education said no. Yeah. And then it was Noel Dempsey at the time and then that was changed to Mary Hannafin. So maybe we were lucky with the change. So then I wrote back a second time well, and we put everything in a in a legalistic perspective so we underpinned it with all the legislation to say well this is why it's important that she gets these you know adapt adaptations from her books to CD so they came back and they were like oh we'll look at it so then we were kind of getting really annoyed so then I said look that's it we're going to go to a solicitor and we're going to say to him look this is our case like Joanne is deserving of this I can't understand why they can't get this so we went down anyway to Cantork to the local solicitor and my mother obviously was mortified she's like I've never done this in my life and we sat there and he says right I've read the letter now that you wrote and I said, yeah yeah I don't know about that letter now she's the letter <laughs> Stephen the letter. though was gung-ho yeah so <laughs> were she, like... yeah so he was like that letter is brilliant that letter is top class now who wrote that letter because Stephen wrote the letter now he did he wrote the letter and I was like oh big fucking change yeah. of tune here like so he was like you should get these like you've got a really strong case like for what you're trying to ask for so he said go back again 
and obviously gave us tips and advice on how to maybe address the next letter and went back and next thing within a week uh, the private secretary from the Department of Education rang to say that they were going to grant Joanne's adaptation of her books to CD. How old was Joanne at this stage? I'd say Joanne maybe about six or seven. Wow. Like what I'm hearing is like each milestone in her life, there were like massive hurdles that, you know, the Arrearians just decided, nah, we're going to just overcome them by through hard graft and determination yeah. and focus. And has that constantly been the way where you've just all kind of collectively fought to ensure, you know, and I, I, we'll talk about Joanne now as, as, as she kind of became almost this public figure um, shortly, but just while we kind of could talk about her childhood, while she was unable to do that herself, you, you all very much were her voice. Yeah. I think the idea of that really was we were trying to show Joanne that you have to fight to get what you need. Yeah. And if we're willing to do it for you, you should be willing to do it for yourself when the time comes to do that. And it was also the idea that you're giving her the opportunity to get from A to B without the obstacle in front of her. So she's not failing at the first go. That there's support, there's mechanisms there yeah. that are behind her. And I think one of the big things for me in the town, I remember um, a lot of the community will say building. So like the youth centre, the J hall, the museum, the church, the school, you know, those the banks they were all like non-accessible. Yeah, steps and whatever. And I remember Joanne coming home from school and when they were going into the museum, she used to say that all the kids got to the door and the first thing that they said is, how is Joanne going to get in? There's a big step going in there. Mm -hmm. So I said to my dad one day, I goes, we need to go back town now and tell them to put a ramp in there. And he's like, oh, jeez, I don't know. I said, we need to go back town and tell them. So anyway, we went Off back. Off you go, Stephen, yeah, says your dad. Well, he came with me <laughs> and uh, he... He was like, now don't say anything now and don't be ruffling anyone's feathers. Like, we'll try and get the ramp and, you know, be happy for what we get. Yeah, be nice. <laughs> so anyway, we met the local county councillors and I said, she needs a ramp to go in there now and that's the end of that. So dad's like, jeez, you're very harsh. Like, and I was like, no, you have to tell them. Like, So eventually the ramp was put in there and they were back in school and they went over obviously to the museum. Sorry, the library is in the inside where the museum okay. is and that's why they were going in there. And the first thing the kids said was, oh, my God, Joanne can go in. Nobody needs to help her. She's the same as us. Ah, oh God. So it was a ramp. A ramp, like, just changed the mindset of those kids. Yeah. And allowed Joanne to feel that she's part of that team or that gang. And she's in school and there's no obstacle. Whereas we're obsessed with putting obstacles in front of everybody. Mm. And particularly with people with disabilities, be it in education or in health or, like, social inclusion. We seem to have an obsession in terms of how we design buildings or how we, I suppose, communicate with people with disabilities or how we assist them. Everything's like, that's a chore. That's an issue. That's a hassle. You're a charity. You should be so happy that we're helping you. And you're like, that's not how you should look at somebody with a disability. Like, there is worth there. Completely. You know, yeah, so completely. that's how we, I suppose, always looked at Joanne. That if we could at least fight a little bit of the way, it will show her when she's old enough to have her own voice that she then has to elevate that to fight for herself. And she very much did that. T talk to us about, I suppose, the turning point when she had a bit of an obsession with Enda Kenny. Still does, which is a bit weird. <laughs> um, she? Yeah. <clears throat> that and Daniel O'Donnell. What? Maybe they've lots of money and mm. she can be looked after. <laughs> I don't know. 
It is a true obsession, by the way, because our turtle is called Enda. Really? Yeah. So was she was she sixteen when she was fifteen? Fifteen, and she was in um, she was doing her junior cert, and Enda Kenny came to Mill Street. Yeah. And at the time, I had started making the documentary about her, so she wanted to see Enda Kenny because she was obsessed with him. And we were like, oh, well, if you get to meet him, you have to ask him a really important question. So the really important question that she asked is, oh, will you do stuff to help people with disabilities and you won't cut the budget for people with disabilities? And Enda, obviously, being Enda, leans in and says, I won't cut the budget for people with disabilities. So that was that. And Joanne was delighted, got her photo and went back to school. And I just carried on doing my filming. Mm -hmm. And then December came and the budget was cut the disability budget was cut and then my mother was like you've got video footage where he says and I was like oh, I don't think so I think you made that up and she's like I'm telling you remember Joanne asked that question I was like nah I think no I think you've lost your mind ma'am so anyway she made me go through all the footage and sure enough and there it was she was right yeah so then we sent it off to the news ends up on the news becomes a big story the Irish examiner contacts Joanne asks her to write a personal piece then came up the concept with Dear Enda because we were his friend. You know, it wasn't Dear Taoiseach. It's like, you're my friend. You promised me this. You didn't do this. And then the whole idea within that letter was that, listen, I've got better things to be doing. So you should be kind of doing your job so I don't have to be telling you to do your job. Mm. And that was the end of that. And then that snowballed from where the Late Late Show got in contact with the local Garda station to find our number. Because that's how you do things in Ireland. You ring the guards <laughs> to get someone's number. <laughs> And asked Joanne would she go on the Late Late Show and then Joanne said in that interview with Ryan Turberty technology is a limb that I never had and lo and behold somebody from the United Nations that works in the technology unit sees Joanne and is organising a technology and girls conference in New York and asked Joanne to address the United Nations. Snowballed really quickly didn't it? Mad. We'll talk about that in a second. Can I just ask you just about the documentary and you know that's phenomenal that you had that filming piece with um, Joanne and Enda what, what what possessed you to film with her I suppose because I was always filming Joanne from a very young age so the idea was you you're know, a documentary maker yeah like let's sorry yeah I trained in documentary making um, in Bath um, so the idea is obviously you know film everything yeah. and then you find out what you have and then your story comes alive um, so that was really it there was no real intent behind yeah, yeah. filming that there was no we're going to get you and uh, like there was nothing no, like that. No, I suppose. It was all but, very innocent. Yeah, but I, it was big. I just think it's amazing that you have all this phenomenal footage of your sister from the early days throughout. That's just so special yeah. with the documentary that has been made. I suppose I was just fascinated by her. I was fascinated yeah, by yeah. how she was able to do stuff. I was fascinated by how she was able to pick up the pen, how she was able to write, how she learned to walk herself um, and then I suppose that progressed into how she started using technology how she was able to use the computer how she was able to write in school how she got around in her wheelchair Amazing, like yeah. it was just like there was no again there was no real intent yeah, of course. for me filming that at, at a young age it was just that I liked filming um, and there was never really an intent to make a documentary about Joanne because as I tell Joanne, your story's not that interesting. <laughs> and then she tells me that she's very interesting. <laughs> That's so, classic brother-sister so, stuff, you, you know. know. 
I've that a lot with my siblings. Yeah. It's grand. yeah. Who would have ever thought that meeting Andy Kenny would leave lead to going on the Late Late Show that would lead to addressing United Nations? Tell us about that. So when the UN got in touch, what was the reaction there in the arrearance? Like, it's not a regular phone call. Um, I don't know, really. I don't think we really thought about it because they... Basically, the request was to address the United Nations and women in technology. So that was the request. And then to put into that a call to action. Okay. So that was pretty straightforward. And then Joanne was like, my call to action is build me a robot. And my mother was like, could you not just ask for an iPad? <laughs> like, why, a, down, yeah. why a robot? Like, It's a bit dramatic. But that, that sums her up, doesn't it? Yeah. And then she said that but you use a remote control to turn on the TV. So why can't I have a robot to like open the door and get me stuff? And she's like, because you are kind of lazy. And we're like, we're not lazy. And we're like, oh yeah, we do use a remote control to do all these things. Mm. So anyway, there was those types of conversations happening in the house as to like, why are you calling for a robot? And then we had to go back and look at, I suppose, the progress of technology and how technology enhanced Joanne's life. And then realizing that women have played an extraordinary role in Joanne's life. So that's my mom, the local health nurse, Christina Mahoney, who who was the lady that pushed Joanne's school books onto CD and created a completely new mechanism in how to do that and spent hundreds of hours creating, you know, that technology to allow Joanne and assist Joanne in her education. Mm. Then that fed into the concept of the importance of education, girls in education, girls not receiving the best possible education in other countries, Joanne realising even though she has a disability that she's still relatively lucky because of the family, I suppose, unit, society in Ireland. And she and went on to do a degree, didn't she, in yeah, criminology? Yeah, so... Wow, yeah. There was just all that really behind it. And then we spent three months, I suppose, constructing the speech and every line was thought about and every word was thought about and we didn't really think any more of it. Like, it was just the Paddies going to New York having a day trip. <laughs> it wasn't a day trip, though. And was then, it an overnighter? Please tell well, me. Well, no, it was. It was like 10 days. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, it was it? Like, it was an, uh, an extraordinary trip. You, you made a, a bit of a yeah. holiday. We did, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, we, someone paid a trip for us to go up in the helicopter and fly over New York, which was obviously phenomenal at the time. You and Joanne went, was it? Or were Myself, Joanne, and my mom and dad. Yeah. Your folks as well. Okay. So when you got there and, you know, bring us to the moment where she's, the, the night before, where you're getting the speech ready. Nervous? Was she ready to go? Was she, did she realise this was an amazing opportunity? I'm sure she did. I think I was doing having a nervous breakdown and I was like, you have to read the speech again. Oh no, that word didn't sound right. We have to change the word there. Okay. And she's like, listen, it's four o'clock in the morning. I'm actually wrecked. <laughs> and the speech is at 10 o'clock tomorrow. I go, Are we going to go to sleep? And I was like, no. And then we read it again. And then we just added a few lines here and there. Like, you know, um, I don't want to live in the shadow of others. I want to make my own journey in life. I thought that was really apt. Um, mm. The idea that her, our parents, like essentially elevated her. But then within, within the speech you hear about the parents at the start, but then she moves on from that. So the idea is that she's finding her own voice within her own talk. And this yes. is her announcing herself to the world. Now, did I think any of that in, in the room in New York? No. Did I want to help Joanne write the most amazing speech 
absolutely 100%. Did Joanne give that speech blood, sweat and tears at the age of 15? Yeah. So when we arrived, obviously, in, in the building the next day and someone's like, this is the queen from from Africa, you're like, sorry? No, we're in the wrong room. We're just giving a speech with technology and there's all these world leaders. Wow. So that's who they invited. Wow. We never knew that. Like, I just thought it was Mary turning up and she you know, did something in technology. Yeah. So there was no comprehension that we were in front of, or Joanne was in front of these incredible world leaders. And some of them obviously were leaders in their country, but they were interested in technology and developing technology and how technology would help girls in their country in education um, or business. So, you know, it was a pretty extraordinary moment. And then when you realise the significance of it, you suddenly stay up all night to send out the press releases and to let everyone in Ireland know like that Joanne is doing this phenomenal gig yeah. at the UN. And then you realise that she's one of the youngest people ever to address the United Nations. And got standing ovation. Yeah, like, but we were not privy to that world. You know what I mean? Like, Joanne grew up in a cottage that was 150 years old. Joanne was lucky because my dad went to Pat Kenny and told him the story of Joanne. Joanne is lucky because society elevated her story. And then Joanne takes on her own story and owns herself and, you know, gives a voice to many people with disabilities that don't have a voice, I would feel, in Ireland. I wouldn't have been aware of anyone with a disability breaking the ground that Joanne was breaking at that age. So it's just phenomenal you know, that at one point a doctor said to my mom, put Joanne into a home and forget about her because she's like a rag doll. And you know what happens to rag dolls? Their limbs fall off. And that's Joanne. So she'll never do anything with her life. And my mother decided, no, you're wrong, actually. I'll prove you wrong. Mm. So that to me is Joanne's story. And it's just one of triumph over adversity. Um... And I think she owns it pretty well, you know. She is. She owns it one thousand percent, and it's obvious though where she gets it from. I mean, well, we're all a bit mad, like you know. So, <laughs> but you have this fundamental drive and determination to make sure that she is an equal, and she has got that herself within her own voice now that she so articulately the irony of that she has a phenomenal way of expressing herself Um, you can see where she gets it from yeah I and it really stems from my mom and dad really ultimately it does and you know I often say it that they never went to college they never went to university they're just two ordinary people that were living a life in the countryside and rearing, you know, myself, my two older brothers and obviously my younger sister. We did running, we did athletics, we played sport. Uh, we were very much involved in the community. And then, you know, this happens in the context of somebody being born and it ultimately changes all our lives. Um and I don't think you could ever go back to that point of being in the cottage because in the cottage is where 
we learned who Joanne was. Yeah. And then once we you move from the cottage, it's almost like Joanne starts moving forward because we're moving forward. Um, and my parents, I suppose, were risk takers, weren't they? Because they didn't necessarily listen to all the advice that they were being given because the advice they felt was not the correct advice. Yeah. And because they decided to get on that plane and go to the UK and to meet Tina Stark. Yeah. It changes. So there's always a point, I feel, in Joanne's story where something happens, be it from a family perspective or Joanne's point of view or a community and the story elevates itself again. And we probably don't embrace those types of things enough, to be honest with you. I think in Ireland, we like to build people up and then bring them back down. Yeah. You know, now Joanne has been consistent in terms of her view and, you know, she's... Has she had any negative press with what she has said? Not not in terms of what she's campaigning for. Let me say that in another way. I suppose society-wise, has she... I'm sure she's had really tough times where she hasn't been accepted. Yeah. I, I, well, I don't know personally for Joanne's point of view. I remember when I was canvassing for the general election 2016 and I had worked on the Magdalen Laundry uh, campaign securing the state apology. So it was one of my points of conversation at the door because I thought, you know, that was a great way to get people to say, oh... So let's engage. So anyway, I was in Ballancolleg and I met this woman and I, and she wasn't very forthcoming. So I said, oh, well, I worked on getting the state apology for the Magdalene women. And she goes, oh, I don't believe any of what they did. And, you know, they took down the church and all this. So I was like, all right, this is a bit of a mad conversation. So I'm going to have to like try and stop it. Disengage. So, yeah. yeah. So then I just said, oh, my sister, you know, is Joanna Reardon. And she goes, oh, that one. <gasps> Well, she's obsessed with the gays. And I was like, oh, my God, this has gone like (laughs) off the charts and I don't know what to do here. So I was like, what do you mean? She goes, she came out saying that gays could get married and she's like obsessed with the gays. And I was like, well, she was part of the campaign to say we should vote for obviously marriage equality. Well, Marriage is between a man and a woman and I don't know what she, what would she know about gays? What does she know about anything? I was like, okay, well, look, this has been really interesting. So I'm going to have to go to the next house. But so you never really know what anyone could say to you. Oh, yeah, my God. Well, look, you're, you're going to get <laughs> mad people like that. And, you know, I'll keep walking backwards saying thanks very much for your time. Yeah. Next. It's the only one that I can remember that stands out. I mean, the only other one I remember we... um. We campaigned really hard to get uh, accessible spaces in the town for Joanne. And somebody anyway had parked in the space. And um, my mom was a bit annoyed with that because obviously there was a big campaign to get those. And there was people just parking them willy nilly. I mean, they shouldn't have been there. So I said, oh, we'll go into the Garda station. And I went in with Joanne and sorry, the accessible spaces outside the Garda station in Mill Street. So I went in and I propped Joanne up on the counter and I said, there's someone parked in the wheelchair space. And he was like, right. And I was like, so what are you going to do about it? And he's like, oh, yeah, um, I'll just get the tickets there now. And he's just moving sheets of paper on the table. And I was like, right, well, I'm going to wait here until you, like, go, out you and... go out and give Because in my head, I was like, oh, I want to show Joanne, like you have to stand up for yourself. right? So we went out anyway. And we got into the car and goes, yeah, he's going to give him the ticket now, sorted, whatever. And anyway, this really old elderly couple with walking sticks <laughs> and everything got out of the car. And we were like, oh, no, <laughs> like not today, you know. So you know, sometimes we can get things wrong, too. Yeah.
you know? Yeah, no, totally. And I have seen that on Joanne's like social media that where rightly she'll call people out yeah. when they are using spaces that should yeah. not be for, they should only be for those with disabilities yeah. and, and so on. And in her campaigning now, I mean, um, she did um, the Leaders Lounge with Brian. Yes. And that's how we kind of started our conversation, yes. which was really good. She's obviously doing an awful lot. She's a contributor to the Irish Times, to a number of other publications. Am I right? Or just the Irish Times? Just the Irish Times. She's doing her own podcast. What kind of is she continuing on? She's super busy. uh, She's obsessed with girls in sport and women in sport. Yeah. And breaking down the barriers for women in sport and acknowledging the role, obviously, that women play in sport and that it's equal to men. So I think any of the work that Joanne does is always how do you draw the line of equality, be it between men and women, and how do you bridge that gap? Um, we were very surprised that she went into like sport and talking about sport. But I suppose in her mind, she felt that women weren't getting the recognition that they deserved in sport. So like when you think of the like of Rena Buckley from Cork yeah. and the phenomenal success that she's had. But yes, we talk about Henry Shefflin yeah. as if like he's superhuman. But what about Rena? And I think we we often just overlook women's contribution to sport and how I suppose that can play a significant part in younger girls' lives. So that's Joanne's obsession. I mean, my mom obviously was like, can you not just do something about disability? She's like, but I don't have to do it about disability. Absolutely. I'm passionate about sports. So loads therefore, of things. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what she likes as well is that, you know, you're not in a box I think that would be her view, like that we'd never put her into a box. So why would she be in a box, you know, now? And I saw her talking about Kelly Harrington recently. Yeah. I mean, just she's completely behind the, all the all the Irish athletes in, in the Olympics and women globally and stuff. I suppose going back to you, Stephen, before we finish up, you're a documentary maker. Are you doing anything else? Are you... Because oh. <laughs> I, I definitely, you've given me a copy of the DVD, which, by the way... Is it available for people or is it? The DVD is available to buy, uh, but it's through Journeyman Films in the UK. Um, so you just Google No Limbs, No Limits yeah. and that's the but way like, to go, The documentary has been seen in 16 countries worldwide and um, then myself and Joanna had to have a Spice Girls breakup where <laughs> we spent too much time together. together. So someone had to leave the band. So I don't know if Joanna When are you having a left. reunion? <laughs> Are you going to do a follow-up? So we're doing a podcast at the moment about um, an ambush that happened in our local area called the Clumbannon Ambush. And Joanne is just like, oh, this will be a very straightforward story. And then there's loads of twists and turns and she's like, oh, trust you to find a story. Like, why couldn't it just be simple? Like, why do you always have to have a twist and something? So uh, working on that and that'll come out next year. And then uh, I've just finished a play on the Clumbannon ambush so that'll wow. come out next year as well where's yeah. the play it'll be in Cork so it's <clears throat> do you do that as well yeah so the long story short of it is my second cousin was a writer and he died and lots of his works like obviously disappeared but locally he would have been recognised and people would have known of him what's his name uh, Bill Cody Patrick Vaughan okay. and there was a play in the attic in his house that remained unfinished and my family, our extended family, asked, would I put a finish to this play? So for the last 17 years, the play has been on and off the shelf because I've been working on the Magdalene Laundries, working on Joanne's documentary, writing a book, whatever. And anyway, when COVID happened, I decided to take the play off the shelf 
and work on it and finish it. Um, so we finished that. I was working with Fighting Words. I was introduced to a writer, John Grogan, via Roddy Doyle and Sean Love. Um, so we, I was working with him for the last two years on it and we've just finished it. So it's amazing. Yeah, so... So it's going to be in... Well, we're hoping Cork next year. So I don't know which theatre, but that's really the aim. Like we did a workshop with um, the Fishamble Theatre Company in terms of, uh, anyway, play development. Um, so that was great. And after that, we kind of finished it. Will you send me an invite? No. <laughs> please, <laughs> yeah. please. God, you're a busy man. Well, not busy. Like I haven't well, done anything lots... in seven years. I would just stop, stop. No, there's lots and lots of bits going on. Look, we'll we'll finish up, but I suppose we will finish on a. I know this will be a light-hearted note. When you all get together back in Mill Street, I'd say that's some crack. A bit mad. My mom, well, she's given up smoking, but she used to go to another room because she was sick of us. And my dad <laughs> often says I'd be better off eating with the dog because he'd get more peace and quiet from us. The uh, five of you, non-stop, is it? Well, no. Myself and Joanne are the motor mouths. Um, my brother Danny would be very quiet. My brother Dennis likes to throw a jibe in every now and then to remind us he's the oldest brother. Yeah. And then and my Gillian. sister Gillian turns up and we're like, oh, Gillian's here. And then, like, we'll be nice and then maybe, like, ten minutes later we're all fighting. Uh, <laughs> Yourselves again. Basically, like, you know. Um, normal family. Pretty normal. Like, I often say to my mother when she says, put away your jacket, I'm like, if you go into any of your house around Ireland, the jackets are on the seats. What's the big deal? Always. Like, who's going to come in and be like, oh, the jacket was on the seat. Or, or put your shoes case, away. like, just on the floor. Yeah. My five-year-old. <laughs> Please my mother loves just being on her own. She loves watching The Chase. She loves watching Carnation Street. If you say something like, you know, um, I told her, anyway, we got engaged. Uh, I got engaged, sorry. Uh, Congratulations. Two years ago. And I said to my partner, Mark, I said, oh, we must tell my parents, obviously. Uh, so went in. The Chase was on. And I saw some news. And mom was like, oh, wrecking my head. And I was like, oh. Pause. And I, no, I was like, we're engaged. Like, oh, that's great. And then she went back watching The Chase. I was like... Was so, Mark beside you? Yeah. And he was like, <laughs> I knew you told me it'd be underwhelming, but Jesus, like, she's obsessed with The Chase. I was like, I told you, like, worst time ever. So she very no, much just like... Pick your moment. Yeah, she just likes to be on her own. She likes to do her own thing, you know? In fairness, she's yeah. done enough. Like, Joanne's really pushed her, you know, out in terms of her, her, her comfort zone. And sure, she had three boys within... Practically three years, didn't she? Wrecked the poor woman. Yeah, and then a gap, wrecked. and then the two. She girls. took a gap, a gap year, <laughs> seven years. <laughs> then we're back. And we're back. <laughs> and then Joanne's a surprise. Joanne was a lucky dip. Yeah. Oh, she sure was. Well, look, you've been absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much for coming in and talking about your phenomenal family. Um, you're an absolute credit to Joe and Anne. <laughs> you and whilst I haven't met the others, I've. Met well, I've met Joanne virtually, um, via Zoom. The likes of COVID, we haven't actually got to meet yet. You're brilliant, and I just wish you all the success. Thank you for having me.